The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 6. The Byzantine Empire. Part 1. In general, when we speak of the Byzantine Empire, we are speaking of the Eastern Roman Empire that was created when it was decided that the two halves of the Roman Empire ought to be recognised as distinct. Originally, this was for the good of the Roman Empire in general, with a belief that by having an Eastern Emperor and a Western Emperor, that the stability of Roman lands in general would be preserved. The Byzantine Empire is named after the city of Byzantium, which was originally a Greek colony overlooking the naval passage from the Propontis, the modern sea of Marmara, to the Black Sea. Control of this narrow waterway called the Bosphorus Strait was desirable due to the trade traffic coming through. The strategical position of the city would make it a target during the first millennium BCE to both Greeks and Persians alike, who would have benefited from having the influence of the Bosphorus Strait. The name Byzantium is a Latinisation of the Greek name Byzantian. The residents of the Byzantine Empire viewed themselves as Roman. As far as they were concerned, they were a continuation of Roman culture. When we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire in 476, we specifically talk about the fall of the Western Roman Empire. For the residents at Byzantium, the Roman Empire hadn't fallen. It was still alive and prosperous, with the capital city having its more modern name of Constantinople in celebration of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, who had established Byzantium as the new centre of the Roman Empire during the 4th century. Constantinople was the replacement for the outdated city of Rome, which hadn't been favoured as the Roman capital for some time anyway. However, with the Roman Empire now having multiple emperors, it would only be a matter of time before those individual emperors would begin to have much more selfish motivations, which would see the legal fragmentations of the empire become more apparent over time. When Emperor Theodosius died at the end of the 4th century, his two sons would rule each half of the empire independently, and the two halves went off toward their own distinct destinies. The story of the fall of the Roman Empire centres mainly around the tribulations of Western Rome, losing lands as a consequence of the Hunnic invasion of Europe, forcing Germanic peoples into the lands of the Romans. However, this was a westward migration from the lands of the east, so the impact of this mass movement of people was felt initially by the Eastern Romans. The Huns forced the Alans into Gothic territory, which in turn forced the Goths into Roman territory. This resulted in the Gothic War, which featured the Battle of Adrianople, which we focused on in the Classical World volume. Some Hunnic tribes would support the Goths in their battles with the Romans, but the Romans also recognised the nature of the Huns and attempted to befriend Hunnic tribes to join their own causes. 
This would create a relationship between the Romans and the barbarian tribes, including the Goths, where the Romans would invest in their own defences and in employing barbarian mercenaries to aid their defences. In defence of their lands, the division between Roman West and East would become very apparent as each half prioritised their own individual affairs. While barbarians threatened Rome itself, Eastern Romans would build defences around Constantinople. The Romans relied heavily on grain imports from their African territories. So when the Western Romans lost their African territories to the Vandals, the Eastern Romans still maintained control of Egypt. In order for the Eastern Romans to maintain control of all their territories, which as we know included Egypt, but also the Levant, Syria, Anatolia, Thrace and the Balkan Peninsula, they would have to pay tributes to the mighty Huns. At the beginning of the 5th century, the Hunnic ruler was Aldin, and there is written testimony of a gift being given by Constantinople to Aldin. And we could assume that this is a financial tribute. Constantinople would have been very aware of Hunnic presence around the lands of the Danube, and would have been constantly quizzing itself over the levels of diplomacy necessary to keep the Huns at bay. The only saving grace for Constantinople was that while the Huns were raiding the Western Romans, they were not raiding the Eastern Romans. When the Vandals took North African territory from the Western Romans, the Eastern Romans were too busy protecting their Northern Front and their Eastern Front from the Sasanian Persians to prevent it. So now, more than ever, the Western Romans were feeling as isolated as ever. With so much pressure on the Roman world in general, the Eastern Romans ramped up their tributes to the Huns. With the Eastern Romans desperate not to allow the Vandals to move further east than Carthage to protect their own African interests, the Huns, led by Attila, invaded Eastern Roman lands in the 440s. The new fortifications at Constantinople proved too much for the Huns, but the Eastern Romans had been frightened enough that they stepped up their tribute to unprecedented levels. The Huns could expect almost a tonne of gold every year from the Byzantine Empire to prevent further invasions. The Byzantines knew what they were doing, however, and bought themselves enough time to be able to build up the forces required to be able to prevent Hunnic invasions. So when they suddenly stopped paying tribute to Attila, Attila would plan a great invasion once more. If the Byzantines felt that they were ready, then incredibly bad fortune would strike, as earthquakes disrupted the Byzantine lands and Attila would engage the wounded Byzantines at the Battle of the Utus in 447. Despite the fact that Attila scored a huge victory, such was the sheer devastation of the battle that Hunnic resources were depleted too much for them to capitalise. They returned to their heartlands and they never invaded again, at least not on a national scale. Attila wanted to regroup and capitalise on the weakness of the Byzantines, but he was sidetracked by his battles with the Western Roman general, Etius. By the time he could reconsider launching another attack, Attila would die, and the Hunnic Empire lost its solidarity and power as a consequence. Just over two decades later and a man of barbarian origins called Odoacer took control of the Italian peninsula, pledging the Kingdom of Italy's loyalty to Constantinople and signalling the traditional end of the Western Roman Empire. Justinian 
The Byzantines saw themselves as Romans. As far as they were concerned, the Roman Empire had not fallen. They saw the lands of Western Europe such as Iberia, Gaul, Mauritania, Numidia and Carthage as lost territories and territories that needed to be restored to their traditional Roman rule. In the year 527, a man called Justinian had ascended the political ranks of the Byzantine Empire to become the sole emperor. Justinian declared the intention for something called Renovatio Imperi Romanorum, a Latin phrase which refers to the restoration of the lands of the Roman Empire. Initially, Justinian would be required to preserve the Byzantine position from the Sasanian Persians, and they would use the aid of their trusted Arab allies who had settled Levantine lands some centuries before called the Ghassanids. The Sasanians conceded that a bit of a stalemate had been reached and came to terms with Justinian, resulting in a period of peace. Peace on the Sasanian front was counterbalanced with unrest on the streets of Constantinople though. Justinian had made reforms within the empire, including the introduction of a new law code, which was unpopular with different groups of people. Some would turn their nose up at this low-born emperor who had ascended the ranks alongside his wife, Theodora, who is suggested to have worked as a prostitute before meeting Justinian, who himself had changed the law to enable him to marry her. This would result in the most violent riots in the history of Constantinople, called the Nika Riots, in which it is reported that 30,000 rioters were killed in the process of restoring the peace. One of the important military generals who had assisted in putting down the rebellion was a man called Belisarius, and Justinian would use Belisarius to try to restore some prestige to his own reign. The one thing that the Byzantines would love was some good Roman military victories, and so Belisarius was sent off to North Africa to focus on the Renovatio Imperi Romanorum, while Justinian would look to rebuild the wrecked city of Constantinople by commissioning great new structures such as the modern Hagia Sophia, the large Christian church. Belisarius reconquered the lands of North Africa up to the city of Carthage after a hard-fought battle against the Vandals. This victory meant that Belisarius could mop up the remains of the Kingdom of the Vandals and bring it all under Byzantine rule, including the Mediterranean islands of Sardinia and Corsica. From here, the Byzantines could turn their attentions on the reconquest of Italy from the estranged Ostrogothic rulers who had taken control of the peninsula since they defeated Odoacha. The Byzantines led by Belisarius travelled from Carthage to Sicily and took control of the entire island before crossing onto the Italian peninsula itself and taking the city of Naples before advancing on the spiritual home of the Byzantines, Rome itself. The next few years were brutal, with many bloody battles that scarred both the Ostrogothic and Byzantine armies. However, by 539, Belisarius had successfully taken the northern capital city, Ravenna, and the Ostrogoths looked all but utterly defeated. However, something did not sit right with Emperor Justinian, and he caught a whisper of a suspicion that the Ostrogoths had actually offered Ravenna to Belisarius, and that he was preparing to become the ruler of a Western Roman Empire from Italy. And this was sufficient enough for Justinian to demand Belisarius return to Constantinople. In the absence of Belisarius, a new Ostrogothic king rose to prominence with the intention 
of reversing Ostrogothic losses to the Byzantines, and his name was Totila. Totila is the name given to the man whose name was actually Baduila. It may be down to the pen of Procopius that we refer to him as Totila. Procopius was a historian who had accompanied Belisarius on his African and Italian campaigns and has given us such a good account of this particular Gothic war. The recall of Belisarius, coupled with an outbreak of the plague in the Egyptian lands of the Byzantines, which would cause disruption to the economy, was just what Totila needed in order to start taking back lost Ostrogothic territories. Initially, Totila was successful in his campaigns and within two or three years he would take back a lot of the land of the Italian peninsula. This was not a good turn of events for Justinian, who had seen the economy of his empire hit hard and felt that he had no choice but to send Belisarius back to Italy, a man who he didn't feel like he could fully trust not to take more than he was entitled to should he be victorious. So Belisarius travelled back to Italy to avenge the work of Totila and a tantalising showdown between two of the great military generals of the 6th century took place. Belisarius would need to defend the city of Rome which had not been yet targeted by Totila. Totila turned his attentions towards Rome in the year 546 and Procopius tells us a woeful story of Rome's residence during the Ostrogothic siege. It appears that Belisarius was denied the necessary resources to defend the city, with Justinian sending very little help. This could either be down to financial problems within the Byzantine Empire, or the fact that Justinian felt a lack of empathy towards Belisarius or, indeed, both. The residents of Rome were starving and resorting to eating anything just to survive. This would be the start of possibly the worst time in the history of the city of Rome to be a resident. The eventual fall of Rome to the Ostrogoths should have been a relief to the surviving residents, but it simply turned Rome into a war zone, as Belisarius waited for Totila to move elsewhere before retaking the city. Belisarius was once again recalled back to Constantinople by Justinian, and so Totila would besiege the poor city of Rome once again. The Byzantine garrison in Rome were just as desperate as the residents by now, receiving no support at all from Constantinople and faced with inevitable defeat by Totila yet again. They faced an impossible decision, to wait to be slaughtered by Totila or to surrender to Totila and likely be slaughtered anyway. Understandably, the garrison soldiers were probably split in their feelings. Some opened the gates to Totila, and Totila showed mercy to women and children only, even chasing down fleeing citizens. Totila had won Rome, but Rome was now just a worthless wasteland due to years of battle. This was the case in other areas of the Italian peninsula as well, where the battles between the Byzantines and the Ostrogoths had been so intense that many of the lands no longer had any value. Italy was in tatters. Justinian eventually did send large armies back to Italy in the early 550s. And this time, the forces led by Artabanus and Narsis started taking back all of the gains made by Totila during the previous decade. The key battle was the Battle of Tagini in 552 where Totila was mortally wounded and as such the Ostrogothic fight was as good as done. The Byzantines had successfully won the Italian peninsula but it was worthless land with many of the population killed or fled into the countryside. 
This episode is called a Pyrrhic victory for the Byzantines, where the definition of Pyrrhic means that the victory was worthless. It's strangely peculiar that this would be the same lands from which we actually get the modern word Pyrrhic, as it was these lands that King Pyrrhus of Epirus scored a worthless victory against the Roman Republic many centuries earlier, with his name being used to describe future fruitless victories. The weakening of the Ostrogoths and the disinterests of the Byzantines brought a new player into Italian politics called the Lombards. The Lombards were of Germanic stock and originated from lands in or around Scandinavia many centuries before, and they were able to displace the relatively small Byzantine presence in Italy during the 560s. For Justinian and the Byzantines, the reality was that Italy was just one area of land that had some strategical and iconic significance, and during the final years of this particular Gothic war, Justinian was also concentrating some efforts into taking territories within the Iberian Peninsula too, in his attempts to create a province of Spania. Justinian had attempted to rebuild Constantinople following the Nica riots, and his wife, Theodora, is remembered fondly and is venerated as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church. She didn't survive to see the end of the Gothic War play out as she died in the 540s, but she is remembered as someone who championed women's rights in the Byzantine Empire, and Justinian continued to support her cause after her death. Procopius's account of her humble and vulgar beginnings may well have been written with an emotional edge as there may have been some resentment of Justinian from behind his pen as he accompanied Belisarius, who would have surely felt the weight of Justinian's distrust. It may have been that Justinian felt concerned about Belisarius's popularity and resented the fact that despite Justinian's own tireless efforts to continuously reform the Byzantine Empire in the face of adversity such as droughts and natural disaster, people still gravitated towards Belisarius as the young, brave and successful warrior who brought glory to the Byzantine Empire with his famous victories against the Sasanian Persians, the Vandals and the Ostrogoths. Millions and millions of people within the empire had died from plague, which some historians deem to be a form of the bubonic plague, and if so, it was the first major bubonic plague outbreak, and most certainly not the last, as we will discover. Justinian had successfully guided the Byzantine Empire through this extreme test. Despite Justinian's potential cynicism towards Belisarius, he remained loyal to his emperor and the Byzantine Empire up until the year of both of their deaths in 565. Together, they increased the size of the empire by almost 50%, and as such, Belisarius has become ingrained in Byzantine folklore, while Justinian is referred to as Justinian the Great. The Defence of the Realm When we look at the outcomes of this period of Byzantine history, there is a strong case for saying that Justinian's strategy of Renovatio Imperi Romanorum was an unwise strategy. An eternal peace with the Sasanian Persians lasted for just eight years. So to be conquering territories in the west while your lands in the east were being attacked and plague was ravaging your population is questionable. The amount of resource and infrastructure needed to successfully govern a huge empire has seen many great imperial forces stumble. We will dedicate an episode to the post Western Roman Italian story later in the volume so that we can pay particular focus on Odoacer, the Ostrogoths 
and the Lombards. The Lombards had created a new heartland for their kingdom in Pannonia and were moving into the remnants of the Ostrogothic kingdom of Italy. One Lombard duchy was set up in the city of Benevento, which was some distance south from the other Lombard duchies and in a similar area of the peninsula to Naples. So the map of Italy was essentially Byzantine territory with dotted areas of land under control of the Lombards. The Byzantines did attempt to expel the Lombards during the 570s, but the ultimate outcome was that the Lombards had successfully captured the lands at the north of Peninsula as far as the Alps, and a separate territory in the south incorporating Benevento and Spoleto. The situation in Italy remained more or less the same until the 8th century. During this time, a new ethnic group appeared that were possibly of Caucasus origin, called the Avars. The Pannonian Avars came to control the lands of the steppe from the Hungarian plains to the Caspian Sea, and they were pressurising the northern borders of the Byzantine Empire. Slavic peoples are thought to have been forced southwards on the Danube territories of the Byzantines by the arrival of the Avars. The biggest threat was coming from the east and the relentless challenges of the Sasanian Persians. When Maurice became the new Byzantine emperor in 582, the Byzantine treasury was very weak after decades of warfare. Maurice seemed to be guilty of nepotism and his fiscal decisions alienated Byzantine armies. The breakdown of the relationship between the Ghassanid king Al-Mundhir III and the Byzantine Empire led to the estrangement of the Ghassanids and as such the Byzantines would lose a trusted ally against the Sasanian Persians. The fortunes of the Byzantine Empire were precarious, so the decisions of the respective emperors were pivotal and everyone in close proximity to Byzantine politics was all very aware of this and ready to step in and do whatever needed to be done for the salvation of the empire. There could only be so much defence that could be provided when the treasury was running dry. Maurice divided opinions due to his military capabilities against his questionable leadership decisions. In a rare change of fortunes, the Sasanians descended into civil war and Maurice was able to become an influential player in Sasanian politics when he chose to support the cause of King Hothro II and after their allied victory, the Byzantines were granted Armenian territories as a reward. So now Maurice could focus on the problems being caused by the Avars on his northern front. With additional resources now available following peace in the east and the traditionally high trained and organised large armies of the Byzantines, Maurice would enjoy a good degree of success in the Balkans against the Slavic and Avar forces, turning the tide of fortune in the direction of the Byzantines. It does seem clear that the Balkan campaigns made by Maurice were somewhat cautious, with a number of attempts to reach diplomatic resolutions with the barbarians in order to pacify the situation without it becoming too expensive. The year was now 602, and the next turn of events has very little in the way of historic explanation. It may have been that the armies were not being paid well enough, or that one of the armies decided to support an ambitious general, but one of the Byzantine armies would march on Constantinople itself, led by a man called Phocas, who may have come from humble beginnings due to a lack of background information about him. His goal was to overthrow the Emperor Maurice. However, this was obviously a premeditated coup d'etat, because Phocas would target the sons of Maurice also. 
Phocas executed Maurice's entire dynasty and displayed their heads for all to see. Phocas would then take the imperial throne for himself. The problem that this caused for the Byzantines is that Maurice had had a trusted relationship with the Sasanian Persians as a result of his support of Khosrow II, the Persian emperor. And now that Maurice had been executed, hostilities between the Sasanians and the Byzantines resumed. Just eight years later, Phocas would suffer the same fate as his predecessor when the Byzantine governors in Africa rebelled against Phocas, executing him and displaying his body parts to the population. The new emperor was Heraclius the Younger and he would take control of an empire that was in a renewed war against the Sasanian Persians led by Khosrow II and one that it could ill afford with the ongoing tensions with the Avars and the South Slavs in the Balkans and the Lombards in Italy. The civil unrest between the Heraclians and the Emperor Phocas had encouraged the Persian Emperor Khosrow to attack the lands in and around the Levant in an attempt to isolate the lands of North Africa from Constantinople. Khosrow seized lands in eastern Anatolia and Syria and threatened the city of Antioch. These lands around the city had been under the control of the Roman Empire since its formation over 600 years previous and now after Roman incursions into Persian lands over the centuries it was time for the Sasanians to capitalise on the chaos of the Byzantines and take control of cities that were unthinkable to lose. During the 610s, the Sasanians captured Antioch and Damascus initially, and this would bring the Sasanians in direct contact with the Mediterranean Sea, denying the land route from Constantinople to Byzantine Egypt. This was strategically important. The Sasanians were led by their formidable military general, Shabaraz, and not unlike the Byzantine general Belisarius before him, feared and successful. Shabaraz would swiftly move to take more coastal harbour towns and cities, moving southwards towards the Holy Lands and Jerusalem. Shabaraz besieged Jerusalem and terrorised the Christian population, aided by the Jews who had been denied the freedoms of their own sacred city. Jerusalem fell to the Persians and the Jews filtered in, expelling the Christian population who had enjoyed control of the city under Byzantine rule. Shabaraz had successfully taken the entire Levant away from Byzantine hands and moved very quickly to take control of the resource-rich lands of Egypt by initially taking lands that would isolate the key city of Alexandria before the city itself fell. Shabaraz gathered control of the whole of Egypt by 621 and would set up a permanent base there. This could be suggested to be the point where Persian fortunes would change and it was all because of a paranoid relationship between the ruler of the empire, Khosrow II, and his most celebrated and successful military general, Shabaraz, who was gaining too much success and popularity for things to remain comfortable. This mirrors the strained relationship between the Byzantine Emperor Justinian and his successful military general, Belisarius, that we spoke of earlier in this episode. The Byzantine Emperor now was Heraclius, and he had to do something about this disastrous situation where lands that had been under Roman control for centuries were now being lost. While Shabaraz terrorised Asiatic lands, the barbarians of Europe still caused major problems on the northern European frontiers of the empire. Heraclius could not afford to be attacked so viciously 
from two fronts with both sets of enemies capable of making campaigns deep into Byzantine territory and targeting Constantinople itself. Heraclius would need to pay off the barbarians in order to subdue them and allow him to pool his military resources to bite back against the rampant Persians. Engagements between Byzantine and Sasanian armies during the 620s in Anatolian lands generally ended in favour of the Byzantines, but clearly both empires needed to invest heavily as the Sasanian goal was to completely destroy the Byzantine Empire, while the Byzantines were simply fighting for survival, having lost large amounts of territory already. If the Byzantines believed that fortunes were changing, then the fact that the Sasanian Persians had now reached out to the Avars to form an alliance and target Constantinople was a concern. Constantinople was besieged in 626 by this alliance and the Byzantine Empire was hanging by a thread. Heraclius and his brother Theodore fought hard to resist the siege. While the siege was taking place, the Avars struggled to maintain their encampments outside the city and the Sasanian Persians were forced to retreat to Chalcedon on the eastern side of the Bosphorus Strait to rethink their strategy. They would not get another chance to attack. Heraclius acted quickly and just as Hosro had negotiated an alliance with the Avars, Heraclius was able to negotiate a political agreement with the western Turkic Khaganate that had been raiding the Persians from the north. The Byzantines advanced as far as the ancient Assyrian city of Nineveh and engaged with the Sasanian Persians at the Battle of Nineveh. It was a hastily thrown together winter campaign by Heraclius who was throwing the dice during a rare opportunity to capitalise on Byzantine favour. Despite having made an alliance with the Turks, the Turks actually and maybe literally got cold feet and didn't go through with the military support for the Byzantines. The Byzantines were still able to score a very important victory though, and this victory in the aftermath of being pinned back into Constantinople was a bitter blow for the Sasanians, who had invested everything in success against the Byzantines, who themselves had invested everything in their defence. The Persian nobles, including Shabaraz, turned against the Persian Shah, Khosro II, and after overthrowing him, they sued for a well-needed peace with the Byzantines, who were surely relieved to receive this diplomatic negotiation. The Byzantines would receive all of their lost lands of Egypt and the Levant back. However, a new chapter in history was beginning, because the year was 628, and the protracted war between the Byzantines and the Sasanian Persians was over, but another man was preparing for war in another area of the Middle East, and his name was Muhammad, based in the Arabian city of Medina, and preparing to battle against the neighbouring city of Mecca. His story would bring the Arabs into conflict with the Romans. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, the first of a four-parter on the Byzantines and their entire history, uh, right back from the end of the classical era, uh, right through all of the medieval history. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to continue the fascinating story of the Byzantines. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. A lot of drama um, carried out throughout Byzantine history. We, we did get quite a lot of um, good historical accounts that we can piece together a lot of what happened during these uh, many centuries that the Byzantines were around. And um, I'm sure that if you enjoyed this week's episode, you'll enjoy a lot of the diplomacy and politics of the future episodes coming up. The Byzantines were just surrounded by 
by a lot of powerful different nations and and ones that were coming and going and uh it's uh it's certainly a very interesting story a lot of uh interesting characters as well so looking forward to continuing the story next week the ancient world cup so here we go once again with the ancient world cup and just as a reminder of what it is, it's a tournament. We get 64 ancient teams in the form of ancient peoples and nations. And uh, we've thrown them all into a hat, drawn them all out into 16 groups of four initially. This is round one. And uh, each week we're focusing on one of the 16 groups and we put it to the vote on social media accounts. We add up the votes at the end of the week and the top two teams advance through to the knockout stages which take place um, in a few weeks down the line after the first round is over. Um, and also um, the, the, the second, um, or I should say, the, the other two teams will get knocked out of the tournament. So two teams advance, two teams get knocked out. This week was Group E, and uh, we found the Neo-Sumerians, a.k.a. the Third Dynasty of Or. Um, the Alans, the Phoenicians, and the Hittites were the four teams in the group. So now I can re uh, reveal the results this week. Um, we're in fourth place, finishing in bottom place, with 8% of the vote for the Neo-Sumerians. In... Third place with 11% of the votes were the Alans. In second place with 29% of the vote were the Hittites. And finally, with 53% of the vote, the winners were the Phoenicians, which is very interesting because the Phoenicians were the majority winners. Um, they're only the second team who were majority winners. Um, the Franks also did it last week, which meant that they got um, the, more than 50% of the votes. Um, but it's quite interesting because their offspring, the Carthaginians, got knocked out of the tournament, uh, albeit in what I would suggest was a tougher group. However, the Phoenicians are definitely through and the Hittites will advance with them. We say goodbye to the Neo-Sumerians and the Alans. Moving on, we go uh, into Group F this week. Let's announce who we're looking at in this group. Uh, firstly, we've got the Judeans, who are the sort of the traditional Jews, uh, the traditional land of the Jews uh, from biblical times, the Judeans, um, quite closely uh, related to the Is Israelites um, and certainly uh, very much formed a part of the United Kingdom of Israel, uh, also from biblical times. But the Judeans and their story is, is quite uh, a big part of the old testament the minoans are the other ones those uh the very sort of you know arguably the first um civilized greek or even european culture uh the minoans from the island of crete uh we've also got the scythians who are the sort of one of the first recognizable groups of semi-nomadic tribes from the steppe lands and uh, also we've got the Kushans, who were um, a migratory group of people from uh, maybe the, the lands of the eastern steppe. So they migrated westwards and, and formed this empire right in the middle of the Silk Road, which uh, we don't really um, talk about the Kushans enough, really, when we consider that they were in an integral part of the early years of the the prominent Silk Road years, um, alongside the Persians, the Romans and the Chinese. Um, so an interesting group and quite a mixed bag then. The Judeans, the Minoans, the Scythians and the Kushans. Uh, that's Group F and that's the one that we're going to be voting on in this week. Keep an eye on Facebook, Twitter and the Tapper Talk discussion forum if you want to cast your vote. Listener messages and reviews. So, as usual, we're going to wrap up with some listener messages and reviews. Firstly, uh, we had a message from Eric who put, Hi Chris, I wanted to write in with two comments. The first is to say thank you for the excellent work you are doing. I studied classics and anthropology in college and have always loved ancient history. I appreciate your ability to weave together many different narratives and keep them digestible. 
History is, despite everyone's best efforts to categorise it, very fluid, with cultures and languages and people and borders constantly shifting, so a holistic view is the best way to understand it. This podcast has been a great refresher and I am often inspired by particular episodes to take up reading on new subjects. The second is just reporting out an issue with how the podcast is organised on iTunes Apple. The unscripted shows between seasons do not show up for downloads, I I suspect because they are not officially attached as part of season three or four. Not a big issue and not sure if there's even anything that can be done, but just wanted to flag it as I have liked the unscripted and special episodes as a palate cleanser between volumes and some may not be able to double back to them. Keep up the great work and I look forward to volume four as you start to pass out of my area of prior study, Eric. Well... I think um, the unscripted episodes were never ever meant to be sort of part of the program. They were really just um, my way of staying apparent, and that and that really is it. So if I wanted, say for example, I, I took about three months off between volumes three and four, um, but if I hadn't published a weekly episode, then people may have even forgotten about the history of the world podcast in that period. So. It was important for me to keep um, some element of um, of um, apparency in 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 the marketplace, let's say, um, so that I could retain uh, my listener um, my listener quota. So really, that was that was the motivation behind that. Um, so uh, it's quite nice to know that people are interested in the unscripted episodes uh, because they were never supposed to be particularly particularly interesting um but the special episodes um they were commissioned uh by um listeners of the podcast especially but i will integrate them into the relevant um program of the podcast so so i will um, I will republish them as part of the seasons, I think, because um, I think they the subject matter is, you know, for each of these these uh, these special episodes, I think the subject matter is of relevance and importance, and um, we should include them really. So I think um, I think ultimately they won't be lost um, to history. Um, these uh, these episodes, so. But thank you. I mean, it's very good. Uh, I think the one thing I picked out from that message is the fact that um, you're inspired to um, dig deeper into subjects that you may not have necessarily thought about reading about or even been aware of in the past. So I think that's, you know, one of the the, the real remits um, or the, one of the personal goals of this is uh, to to introduce people to new aspects of history that interest them, and I've like you know that that's uh, great to hear. So thank you, Eric. A very um, a very good message there. Um, I'm not sure uh, Eric Danielson, I think your name is, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, thank you for writing in. Um, another message I've got here is uh, from Payrix Amith. I hope I've pronounced that right. I probably haven't. Um, hey, Chris, my son and I listen to your podcast. He just turned 11 today, and I would like to make a contribution in his name because I'm sure he would be thrilled to become a member of the Illuminati. Uh, we listen to the podcast and the fall of civilizations when we are making civilizations or how we perceive them out of sand at our local beach. My son truly loves learning about history and the civilizations that drive it. His name is Iggy. I think it would make his year if he became a member of the Illuminati. Uh, I want to thank you for the joy and knowledge you bring to my son. It's some of our happiest moments when we do that together. Well, um, Payrix and Iggy, uh, thank you very much for listening to my podcast. Um, it's a great pleasure, Iggy, to have you on board as one of my special hot worlders. Um, and I hope um, maybe one day I can come and help you make some uh, sand civilizations on the beach. Um, and uh, I really do hope you had a, a wonderful and magical 11th birthday. And uh, that I'm sure there's going to be a very, very special place for you in the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Um, 
moving on, um, in terms of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, what is it? Well, it's a special place for all of those people who make uh, contributions towards the podcast. And uh, you can make contributions uh, by going to the History of the World podcast.com and clicking on the Patreon link. And uh, when you sign up, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as has uh, Patrick Smith, who I think is suspiciously like Patrick's Amith. Um, so I think that's probably you. Um, D. Mark Lang and uh, Teresa Wilkerson. All of you are now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And I thank you for helping to support the podcast um and um that's about it i think for all the unread uh, messages all that yeah i think i think we've done it all um so thank you very much to each and every one of you and thank you for those of you who wrote in next week we carry on the story of the byzantines um and um with what uh, talking of civilizations, I tell you what: if you if you make the Byzantines in the sand, you'll probably be there all day. Such is their longevity of their history, and uh, the fascination of their uh, of their politics. So um, we'll look forward to finding out more about them next week in the second of our four parter. So until next week, thank you so much for listening. Uh, look forward to linking up again with you next week, and be good. The history of the world podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World Podcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.